Matthew chapter 5 is our consideration again today, the second beatitude. We're calling this series on the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. The greatest sermon ever preached, Christ's Sermon on the Mount, begins with the greatest blessings ever pronounced. They're known as the Beatitudes. As Dr. John Vaughn has well said, the Beatitudes are attitudes that ought to be in the believer's life. They're transformational. They're essential. They're not optional. Jesus is not just suggesting an ideal here. All Christians are to be like this, not just the super saints. All believers will manifest all these traits, not all to the same degree. Some believers will certainly have one characteristic more prominent than other believers. And even within the same believer, one of these traits will be more prominent than another trait, but all will be present. All of these traits are spiritual. Just laying an introduction, a foundation. When Jesus begins by stressing poverty of spirit, as we talked about for the last two Sundays, he's not talking about physical poverty. He's not uh, emulating or commending to you the, the monastic vow of poverty. So please don't go woke with Jesus' words. He's talking about spiritual poverty. He's talking about the grace of humility that is prerequisite for every other virtue in the Christian life, and certainly the other seven virtues that are listed here in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's where it begins, poverty of spirit. And this isn't talking about being penniless and physically poor. This is talking about being poor in spirit, humbled, dependent, completely upon God for His grace. But we want to go a little further, and I'm going to take in all of the Beatitudes, though we'll just focus on the second today in verse 1 of chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel. And seeing the multitudes, He went up into a mountain right there by the Sea of Galilee, and when He was set or seated, His disciples came unto Him. No doubt He waited till they all got settled, and they were hanging for something from his mouth, then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice the bookends there. The first beatitude and the last beatitude all have the same promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. In other words, you're in good company. The Beatitudes, eight essential qualities. And each of these characteristics or qualities implies the next. The first one is foundational for all the others, for the second, third, right on through the eighth. But each one imp implies the next one. 
There is no use insisting on spiritual sorrow over sin, which is comprehended by the word mourn, M-O-U-R-N, in the second beatitude. There's no use doing that unless you've got poverty of spirit nailed down to some extent. And you can't mourn unless you hunger and thirst after righteousness. Something has to fill that vacuum of pride and self. It was a wise man, I don't know who would give credit to or I would, it was a wise man who said, tell me what makes you laugh and what makes you weep and I'll tell you what kind of person you are. I'll tell you what your character is. That's generally true, maybe not without exception, but that's a pretty profound, generally true statement. It was several years ago that I shared this illustration. Many of you did not hear it. Permit me to share it again. A true story of many years ago, there was a train wreck in England. And when the rescue workers came to try to find survivors amid the tragic wreckage, they found a little girl in the arms of her dead mother. She had a lollipop in her hand. She was laughing as they took her away from her dead mother's arms. But when they took away her contaminated lollipop, she cried. I can't get that story out of my mind. It just expresses it so succinctly, the warped values that so many have. We excuse that in a child. We forgive that. But oh, the warped sense of values in so many older people who weep when they should laugh and laugh when they should weep. So could I ask you this morning as we go through this message to think this way and ask yourself this question, what do I weep over? Do I weep over the same things Jesus wept over? How paradoxical it is, what an oxymoron on the surface it is that Jesus would put a premium on sorrow. The God who is supremely happy would put a premium on sorrow. He would say, in effect, happy are the mourners. Really? Is God some kind of cosmic killjoy and spoil sport? How can the mourners be truly happy? Again, just this very idea, like the rest of the Beatitudes, they're all counterintuitive. This attitude does not appeal to us naturally. Why? Well, maybe not primarily because, but at least partially because we have subscribed to the popular notion of our day that is popular even in evangelical circles that if we Christians are going to attract and entice the unsaved, that we've got to come across as really jovial, even to the point of being slap-happy. Go lucky. And so in many cases, we assume a happiness that does not spring from within. In many cases, it is affected. It is artificial. It often leaves us hollow on the inside. And Jesus delivers a death blow to that kind of superficial joy right here. The joy of the world. The mourning that Jesus talks about 
in the second beatitude is to be equated with godly sorrow as it's revealed in 2 Corinthians 7. I'll have you turn there a little bit later, but for right now, would you listen to verse 10? 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. That's a play on words. Godly sorrow involves repentance, leads to repentance, but you don't regret it when you do it. But the sorrow of the world, please make note of that, the sorrow of the world, that's what Jesus is condemning here worketh death. That's what the Beatitudes teach us, and we need to see how this Beatitude relates to the first, the relation of godly sorrow to poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit is the first one. Blessed are they that mourn. Is there a connection between the two? Is there a natural progression? Yes, I think there is. We kind of alluded to that already. When I truly see my spiritual poverty in the light of God's dazzling glory and holiness, when I see how bankrupt spiritually I am, that sight will cause me to mourn over my sin. It stops our mouths. When Isaiah had a vision of Jesus on his throne, the king, he said, I'm ruined. Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips. No excuses. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We don't complain about the abuse we receive from a parent. We don't say, the devil made me do it, and I'm not excusing abuse. Our mouths are stopped. We see this relation of poverty of spirit to mourning spiritual grief in Jesus Christ Himself. He is the man of sorrows, and yet He's a supreme example of poverty of spirit. I won't have you turn there because we're turned to several other passages, but I'll allude to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, that great evangelical chapter of the John 3.16 of the Old Testament Isaiah 53, which talks about the suffering servant of Jehovah seven or eight hundred years before Jesus came on the scene. It just describes his substitutionary death so beautifully. And it says in verse 3 of Isaiah 53 that this suffering servant of Jehovah would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We love to sing a hymn. It's entitled, Hallelujah, What a Savior, but it starts out that way. A great hymn by Philip P. Bliss, man of sorrows, what a name, for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. I remind you that though Jesus had joy within and He rejoiced in spirit, overall He was characterized as a man of sorrows when He came the first time. It won't be that way when he comes the second. Though we do not read that Jesus ever laughed in the Gospels, I'm sure he did. I cannot imagine that he did not, when he gathered the children in his arms, smile at them with great love and make them feel welcome and, and loved. 
As he joined in the festivities there in the wedding of Cana of Galilee, I cannot imagine that he did not laugh and rejoice. I don't think he had a deadpan face. And when he told the disciples a little bit further in this Sermon on the Mount that they should fast, but he said, don't do it with a long face. So evidently he wanted them to re- rejoice, be happy while they were doing it. It was for the joy that was set before Jesus that he was strengthened and could endure the cross, the writer to the Hebrews tells us. But the point I'm making, and please do not misunderstand this, it's so easy to. The point I'm making is Jesus was preeminently a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He wept. He wept at the grave of Lazarus, even though he knew what he was going to do. He was going to raise that man out of the grave, (laughs) bring joy to his sisters and neighbors and family. But he still wept in sympathy with those at the grave. As he came up for the last time over the hill of the Mount of Olives before his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, the Bible says he wept as he thought of what was going to happen just a few decades later when Rome would descend upon Jerusalem with her hordes under Titus and raise everything to the ground and there would be no more trees left on which to impale Jews. And just thinking of that and knowing that would happen, Jesus wept. You know, there's an interesting expression found in John chapter 8. I'll set the stage for it. The Jews were responding to Jesus' claim, which on the surface did seem pretty preposterous. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Whoa. Them were fighting words. To these Jews, how they prided themselves in their father Abraham And he had been dead for almost 2,000 years, and now Jesus is just 30 years of age, and their response to Jesus is, thou art not yet 50 years of age, and have you seen Abraham? I believe, and I won't be dogmatic about this, but I believe Jesus appeared to be much older than 30. He appeared to be closer to 50. As a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he was worn and perhaps wrinkled before his time as he bore the sin of the world upon his shoulders. When Jesus came the first time, it was in humiliation. Paul told the Corinthians wonderful words there in 2 Corinthians. He became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. He was literally poor. He had no place to lay his head, though he had created all things. The foxes had holes, the birds of the air had nests, but he said, I have nowhere to lay my head, the Son of Man. And so as he progressed through his earthly ministry, which didn't last very long, he had, of course, to begin with, he had to borrow a manger in which to be born. He had to borrow a boat in which to push off from the seashore so he could preach to people they were pressing upon him. He had to borrow a a donkey to ride into the city of Jerusalem on his triumphal entry. He had to borrow a grave in which to be buried. As someone has said, pointed out, made sense to borrow it because he wasn't going to need it very long. Amen. He was a man of sorrows. He was poor. Poverty of spirit. 
and sorrowful disposition were mingled together. But as the late Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, I've seen that building, as he said, I agree with him, he said, Jesus was sorrowful but not morose. He was burdened but not miserable. He was serious but not solemn. He was sober-minded but not sullen. I think that's really striking the balance there about Christ. Why? Why was he this way? Well, he himself testified, I, am, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straightened, how am I narrowed till it be accomplished? He's talking about the baptism of suffering. He was a man on a mission to go to the cross and offer himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The man of sorrows. Aren't you glad that we can enter into his joy because he sorrowed over our sins? But then there's a connection between these first two Beatitudes, secondly, and the abandoning of self-reliance that we talked about last week, that inevitably leads to repentance. When we abandon our self-reliance, that leads to repentance. A person doesn't truly repent until he or she comes to see how bad they really are. And as I said last week, we know the Bible's inspired, among other reasons, for the fact that it doesn't pull any punches when it describes our sin. It tells the unvarnished truth, the unflattering truth about man. Man wouldn't tell on himself that way. And we must have the Bible to inform us because we cannot rely on our own deceitful hearts to make an accurate diagnosis of our condition. We do not realize the plague of our own heart, much less can we prescribe a remedy. The Bible says in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. Think of the most deceitful person or or thing you can identify with, and your heart is worse than that, and mine is too. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? No. Can the leopard change his spots? No. Jeremiah proceeds from that argument to say in chapter 13, verse 23 of his prophecy, then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. A lot of people think, oh, I can do good if I just set my mind to it. No, you can't. Your heart's deceitful and desperately wicked, and so is mine. And we need the Bible to inform us and make an accurate diagnosis so that we will come to the place to be like the prodigal son who came to the end of himself and we acknowledge, I can't fix it. I have a problem and I can't fix it. I need help from outside of me. Some people do some stupid things when they get in that condition of conviction. They'll use all kinds of self-help. They'll go to get therapy. They'll get shock treatment. They'll get psychoanalysis. They'll stare at their navel for hours. I'm serious. No use in that. It's all unavailing. You've got to have Jesus at that point. There's a connection between the first and the second beatitude in the fact that the sorrow of the world, spoken of in 2 Corinthians 7.10, is ungodly and fatal. I'm 
referred to that verse, but I do want you to see it. Would you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10? 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, Paul said, For godly sorrow worketh repentance. It leads to repentance, to salvation not to be repented of. We quoted that part of the verse, but notice the rest of the verse. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Whatever that is, it's pretty bad, the sorrow of the world. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, the Apostle Paul introduces the famous rapture passage. There's more truth revealed about the rapture here than anywhere. And he says, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye what? Sorrow not as those that have no hope. So evidently those who have no hope and sorrow, that's the sorrow of the world. There is a sorrow that brings despair and no healing is released through tears. God made us to weep, amen. He meant for tears to enable us to have an emotional catharsis and bring healing. But tears that are shed in self-pity will bring no healing and no lasting change. Sometimes the sorrow expressed by some people even becomes very unnatural, tragic. I will never forget an experience I witnessed back in 1993, 94, when Chloe, my first wife, was fighting for her life at Baptist Hospital in Miami, Florida. She was in intensive care for a whole month, the month of February. And God was entreated by the prayers of many, many people all over the world. And she made it through a crisis, though three of four doctors had given up on her. But in the room right next to her, since I could tell what was going on, I was there much of the time, the family lost a mother. A husband lost his wife. And I wish I could forget this, but I can't for hours. They clung to that brain-dead corpse, refusing to let the morticians come and tend to it. Finally, the hospital authorities had to come and insist in a gentle way, you've got to go. That's unavailing sorrow, folks. And there's a lot of that that goes on. It doesn't result in comfort. God made us to weep. Natural sorrow is common to all men, both saved and lost. It's not an evidence of weakness, but of love. I hear some people say to grieving family members at a funeral, and I know they don't, they don't know what to say. They just they feel inadequate. I, I get that. Sometimes they'll say, There now, pull yourself together, big boy. Don't cry. When the very thing they need to do is cry. Now, while certain kinds of sorrow are natural and therapeutic, and some are not, there's only one kind of sorrow that is godly sorrow or supernatural sorrow, and that's the sorrow that leads to repentance over our sin. It leads to a changed life. Repentance is not just being sorry about our sin, it's being sorry enough to quit. And that that touches on 
My next point, the reaction of godly sorrow to the presence of sin. Not only the relation of godly sorrow to poverty of spirit, but the reaction of godly sorrow to the presence of sin. The word mourn here, blessed are they that mourn, as we go back to Matthew chapter 5 verse 2, or uh, verse 4. The word mourn is the Greek word pentheo, which is the most severe of nine Greek words translated sorrow or, or sorrowful in the New Testament. It's the same word used by the disciples, or of the disciples, who were mourning over Jesus before they knew that He had risen from the dead. They were in grief. It, it, it's, it describes a, a genuine, heartfelt grief that carries with it a deep inner agony, soul travail. It is directed toward God. It is not directed toward, it's not pity of self. Blessed are they that mourn in that sense. And so mourn for what? That's the question now. What are we to mourn over? Well, the obvious answer is sin. You say, how do we know that this is mourning over sin? Well, if the first beatitude deals with spiritual poverty and our desperate need, our helpless need of grace from God, then the second must deal with mourning for sin. Because if it's not sin, why do we need God's grace? Jesus was a man of sorrows. Why? Because if we go back to Isaiah 53, the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. All other conditions that cause sorrow are the effect, in one way or another, the effect or the result of sin. Sickness, disease, pain in childbearing, misunderstandings, broken relationships, hatred, War, poverty, famine, natural disasters, death, you name it, none of those were in the world before sin. Sometimes even things we don't think of really are the result of sin. You know that George Whitfield, the great British evangelist, the instrument of the Great Awakening in the 1700s, both in England and in the colony, American colonies, he said, even when a dog barks, it's as if the creature is saying, I take up my master's grievance against your sin. <laughs> That's what Whitfield said. Now, what manifestations of sin are we talking about? Let's be specific here. If we're going to mourn over our sin, if we're going to treat it, if we're going to enter into the comfort that is promised here, superficial treatment will not work. As a great evangelist said, we can't plow with tines that barely scratch the surface. What manifestations of sin are we talking about? Well, first of all, there's our actual transgressions. That would be the thing we think of most readily. If you have time to turn to Psalm 51, I'll, I'll quote several other verses, but let me go ahead and quote the verses 3 and 4. The great penitential psalm of David Psalm 51, in verse 3, he says, For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. And then he goes on to say, Against thee and thee only, O God, have I sinned. So that's the thing we need to do. That's what God tells us to do about our sin, is acknowledge it. Acknowledge that it's directed against God. But what does the world say? I'll tell you what the world says, and I'm dating myself because some of you will remember this commercial a few years ago, but it hasn't been around for a while. 
pack up your troubles in a glad trash bag and smile, smile, smile. How many of you remember that? You're not willing to admit it. That's what it is. In other words, hide your problems and your sins and pretend to be happy. Pack up your, 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 your troubles in a glad trash bag and smile, smile, smile. What does Jesus say? He says, confess your sins and mourn, mourn, mourn. Big difference. David was devastated over what his awful sin had done to his lawful wife and to, his, and to Bathsheba and to her husband that he had murdered and to the family, and he, to his loyal subjects who loved him dearly, and they were shocked. But let me tell you, nothing broke the heart of King David like the realization of how his sin had offended a good God. That broke him. Remember, our actual transgressions comprehend both as David said in the closing verses of Psalm 19, both presumptuous sins and secret faults. Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Sometimes we forget that. Yes, our God is merciful, but He's also holy. And we have the idea that if we just confess the sins that our conscience bothers us about, that that's all we need to do. Hey, listen, our secret faults can offend God as much as our deliberate sins. So what are we to do about it? I'll tell you what we're to do about it. We're to do what David did when God sent three years of famine in his reign, and he didn't know why, and he prostrated himself before the Lord, and he asked God, why are you doing this? You know, God is always willing to show us when we get into that frame of mind. God said it's because of what your predecessor, King Saul, did in breaking the league with the Gibeonites. If we're serious about what withholds God's blessing, what offends Him, God will show us. But we need to be unsatisfied, dissatisfied with our present level of concern over sin. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet that he was, he already had that reputation he said in chapter 9, verse 1, Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I would weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Though he was already known as a weeping prophet, he said, I wish I could weep more. Our actual transgressions, we need to mourn over them. But that's just the beginning, folks. Secondly, we need to mourn our sin nature. Not just our actual sins, but the root behind them. That's what David did here in Psalm 51 in verse 5. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It was not sinful on his parents' part to conceive him, but he was talking about there was sin involved, and he inherited that sin nature at conception. And David lamented not just what he had done to offend a holy God and bring dishonor upon his family and heartbreak and shame to Uriah the Hittite, but he lamented the evil principles that caused that sin. He wasn't content to just peacefully coexist with it. 
David wanted to dig up the root and not just chop down the poisonous trunk. You ever gotten rid of poison ivy? Well, I hate that stuff. Some of you are probably allergic to it. It's not, not just a normal rash you break out with. You don't just cut it as it's crawling up the trunk. You better get it out by the roots. Beloved, we need to realize, and I know I could be misunderstood as I say this. I'm trying to be as clear as I can. And I'm not singling out one sin over any other. We need to realize that we sin on the level of our imaginations and our desires. We can recycle past experiences and stir up sinful lusts. We can imagine what we would do in the future given the right opportunity. Not just sins of the flesh, but also of the Spirit. How we would get even with somebody if we could, if we had the opportunity. Do we ever mourn that? Do we ever confess that? This needs to be said right now. With the debate going on, even in professedly evangelical circles, about same-sex attraction. While we need to reach out in love to people that want to change, let's not compromise what the Bible says. There are professing Christians that still want to celebrate their gay identity. They just agree not to practice it. They call it maintaining. Wait a minute. Is a manifestation of the sin nature sinful too? If it is, how can we celebrate what God condemns? We're afraid to speak up, I know. But should we not rather cry out with the Apostle Paul, who was a mature saint, as I said, in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, after expressing the conflict in his own experience between the law of his mind and the law in his members, he lamented the sinful desires that stubbornly persisted in his heart. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Don't we all have persisting traits of our sin nature that still need to be lamented and mourned over? Jesus spoke of the plague of our hearts. Do we know the plague of our hearts? Do we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, and thank God for that, that when we have the Holy Spirit, we receive Him at, at, at conversion, and He is the down payment, He is the earnest of the, of the completely redeemed possession. But do we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan for the full redemption of the body? when we will be delivered from the very presence of sin. As Paul said to the Corinthians, do we earnestly desire to be clothed upon with our house which is from above? I mean, there's a deep groaning for that. Truth is, some of us would be just happy if we could live in our brick and mortar house forever here on this earth. You know why? Our sin nature doesn't bother us like it does God. But the only way we'll be liberated from it, the only way we'll be able to love God perfectly and worship Him worthily for the first time is if we're liberated from this body of death and sin. And you're not growing in grace if you don't long for that more and more and more.
Well, there's something else we need to mourn over, and that is the withdrawal of God's manifest presence. And when God does that, it's always because of sin. Now, we know as believers that He will never leave us or forsake us. That was Brother Leonard Vincent's favorite verse that was brought out at his funeral, Hebrews 13, verse 5. Thank God for that. He will never leave us nor forsake us. If we are His children, His Spirit is with us. We're sealed with the Spirit to the day of redemption. Ah, but listen to me. His manifest presence is something else. There are times when we may not be conscious of any known sin in our lives, but the spiritual barometer drops in our soul. We do not sense that God is near at all. We may even be deprived of any sense of the existence of God. Yes, as Christians, as believers. In some cases, we feel utterly abandoned by God. We're afraid to admit it, but we do. Could I offer a word of encouragement? You're not alone. In fact, you're in pretty good company. Some of God's choice saints down through the years, the people were still talking about because of how God used them and poured out His Spirit upon them, had exactly those experiences. I'm talking about Spurgeon. I'm talking about Brainerd. I'm talking about saints in the Bible. Like Job who said, Oh, that I knew where I might find Him. If God would just speak, if God would just show Himself. But He remained silent for at least a year. I'm talking about people like David who after crying in verse 3 of Psalm 42, my soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He said, I will say unto God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Thank God David wasn't content to remain that way. The Bible speaks about one of the godliest kings of of Judah, King Hezekiah, in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 31, and it says this, even though overall he was a godly king, did some noble things, enacted reforms that needed to be enacted. But the Bible says this, Howbeit in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, in some of the strangest verses in the Bible, God left him. That's what it says. God left him. Why? To try him to, that he might know all that was in his heart. Maybe you've done it with your child at the supermarket or at the department store. They're prone to get distracted and not stick with you and have to keep their hand on the cart. And so you'll, you'll, you'll keep an eye on them, but you'll let them get behind another counter and miss you for a minute. And then when they start missing you, you'll jump out and show yourself. God does that too. He leaves us to try us to see all that is in our hearts. You've heard me talk about it before, but it's so appropriate. In Luke chapter 2, the closing verses are close to the last part of the chapter. Jesus, as a 12-year-old, the only thing recorded about the youth of Jesus, after he was a baby and before he was 30 years of age, the only thing recorded about the youth of Jesus is when at 12 years of age, his parents took him up to Jerusalem for the feast, and he was left behind. They didn't Inadvertently, they didn't realize it. 
So his parents were probably caught up with it in the excitement of going to the feast with their relatives and friends. That was quite a thing to go up to the feast, the ascents. They went a whole day before they missed Jesus. I'm probably talking to some people today who have gone a whole week without talking to him. I hope not. They went a whole day and they finally discovered, where's Jesus? What? He's not in the company? They checked with the cousins. Did you see Jesus? No. So you know what they did? They retraced their footsteps. By the way, when you stray from Jesus, you'll have to go every step of the way back. There's a high cost of committing sin and a high cost of confessing sin. There's no shortcuts, though God is willing and ready to forgive. They had to go a whole day's journey back. That's two days. And they find Jesus in the temple talking to the doctors of the law, both hearing them and asking them questions. They were amazed at the wisdom that he had. And Mary was the spokesperson as a mother. She probably more emotional about it. And she said, Son, behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Would to God that when we feel bereft of God's manifest presence, when we don't enjoy the fellowship we once enjoyed with Him, we will not rest content until we find Him. We'll seek Him sorrowing. Do we know anything about that? Is that even on our radar? Do you mourn for the manifest presence of Jesus in your life? Do you mourn for the manifest presence of Jesus in the church? I heard a man pray yesterday from Ireland. It stirred my heart. He gave a devotional on the prodigal son, and I've never heard an application this way, but I'm sure the Holy Spirit directed him. He, instead of talking about prodigal individuals, he prayed for the prodigal church. Wow. The Laodicean church that thinks that they're increased with goods and rich and have need of nothing and don't know that they're poor and miserable and blind and wretched and naked. That's us. That's the church in America. Do we mourn over that? That leads me to the fourth and last thing I'll say in this point, and I'll hasten with the others. We need to mourn over the sins and the hardened hearts of others. I alluded to Isaiah, who was a young prophet when the events of chapter 6 unfolded in the year that King Uzziah died. Who was Uzziah? Well, he's also called Azariah in the Bible, one of the longest reigns of any king, 52. Can you imagine? I mean, we, well, yeah, we can't imagine because Queen Elizabeth was 70 years a monarch. But 52 years for Uzziah. The year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah, this young prophet who thought so much of this godly king, he was devastated, but the Bible says he testified, I saw the king. I saw Jesus. We know that from what John's gospel says. 
He saw the thrice holy God before whom the seraphim covered their faces and the feet and, and feet. And, and he cried out, as I already mentioned, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am ruined. For mine eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. I am a man of unclean lips. But then the very next thing he said was, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. We see our own sin first, amen? And unless we see the plank in our own eye, we won't be able to cast out the speck in our brother's eye. But once we see our own sin, yes, we'll be broken, we'll mourn over the sins of others around us. That's not being judgmental. That's being a good brother or sister in Christ. God is looking for intercessors who will be broken and burdened about the sin of people around them. In the day of another prophet, Ezekiel, we mentioned Isaiah, but in the day, day of another prophet, Ezekiel, the Lord sent an angel with an inkhorn to go over the whole city of Jerusalem. And you know what that angel did? He marked the foreheads of the men that sighed and cried for all the abomination done in the midst of Jerusalem. This is what Jesus did in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, before he healed a man with a withered arm that hung limp at his side, he looked around at everybody in the room, and he saw the carping critics. He knew what they were there. They were wanted to find fault with him for healing on the Sabbath day, and the Bible says he was grieved for the hardness of their hearts. Does that grieve us? And when the world around us celebrates their sin, are we willing to stand out like a sore thumb and weep? In a parallel verse to, to this verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, in, in, in Luke chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus said, Woe unto you that laugh now, the key word is now, woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. In an earlier verse, he said, Blessed are ye that mourn now, for ye shall rejoice. Are you willing for the world around you, even the religious world, to think you are strange when you, in the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4, you don't run with them to the same excess of dissipation that they do? If you have to work at a secular place and they come back on Monday morning, tomorrow, and they start talking about all those sexual escapades over the weekend... When you don't crack a smile and you don't think it's funny and you don't make over it, are you willing to be ostracized? May I remind you, as one preacher said so aptly, I like this, he said, if, if I seem out of step with the world, it's because I'm marching to a different beat. If you're saved, you're marching to a different beat. doesn't matter what the world thinks. It's the same world that crucified our Savior. The spirit of the Christian is the very antithesis of the spirit of the world. And the great need of the church today is to weep. Yes, there are times to laugh. There are times to rejoice. We need to encourage one another when we come together. I get that. 
but the wisest man who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ. Solomon, by inspiration, not just by wisdom, but by inspiration said this in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. And Sorrow is better than laughter. He wasn't being morbid. We just need a sense of what is needed the most. May God cause us to mourn for others. And I close very quickly with the last point. The reward for godly sorrow in the promise of solace or comfort. I want you to see that. The reward for godly sorrow in the promise of solace. The promise that Jesus connects to this second beatitude. Blessed are they that mourn over the things that I mentioned already, over our actual transgressions, over our secret sins, over the withdrawal of God's presence, manifest presence, over the sins of others. The reward associated with that is they shall be comforted. Isn't that wonderful? Our very griefs are blessed, Spurgeon said, because they are points of contact with the divine comfort. Now, how does God comfort those who sorrow over sin? their own sin and the sin of others. Very quickly, well, he does it himself, first of all. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 speaks of the God of all comfort. Who comforteth us? He himself comforts us in all of our tribulation. Aren't you glad that God hasn't mellowed in his old age? His default setting, even in the Old Testament, was that of offering comfort to his people. Just jot this reference down. I love Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, the words that are made famous by the very opening, if I'm not mistaken, of Handel's Messiah. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. If the mourning here is for sin, then the comfort promise must be that of salvation through the gospel of God himself. I think of Simeon, that aged man who just was led by the Spirit at the right time to come up to the temple when uh, the baby Jesus was brought to be dedicated and, and the ceremonial purification affected for him. The Bible says Simeon, that old man, was waiting for what? For the consolation of Israel. And then when he held the baby Jesus, I'm going to hold the baby in a minute. When he held the baby Jesus in his arms, he said, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. God himself comforts us with his salvation. We're comforted by the scriptures. Just jot down Romans 15 verses 4 and 5. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Yes, there are sometimes the scriptures wound us convict us. But then aren't you glad that after we've been wounded, we're healed by the Word of God? And I see that as my role. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I heard a preacher say many years ago, he said, my job is to uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. Both are needed. To the woman taken in the act of adultery, convinced by the law thrown down at Jesus' feet by the law keepers, the doctors of the law, Jesus said as he finished his dealing with her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. 
What a healing balm to her heart. Forgiven much, she would love much. We're comforted by the Holy Spirit. That's what the word paraclete means. John 14, 6, but I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter, the paraclete, one called alongside to help, one just like Jesus, he said. In a very real sense, the Holy Spirit is like a mother. We see that in the opening verses of the Bible. The Spirit of God brooded upon the face of the waters like a mother hen broods over her chicks. The fruit of the Spirit is first of all love, And then, joy. It has to be from within. It has to be the product of the Spirit. It's not something we can just manufacture. It was said of the early disciples there in the book of Acts that they walked in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Some of us have a hard time chewing bubble gum and walking at the same time, but if you're saved, you can do both at the same time. We're comforted by other believers. Oh, how Paul was comforted by... Titus, I'll just mention this and then I'm done. Give you the situation. Paul was waiting at Ephesus or Philippi, we're not sure which. As he wrote the second epistle to the church at Corinth, and boy, he'd really raked them over the coals in the first epistle. They deserved it. I mean, they were just all kinds of abuses. They were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They were taking their brothers and sisters to court. They were just being polarized behind one champion. They were divided. So he rebuked them. But he didn't didn't know how they took it. He couldn't get on WhatsApp or text or even telephone. So he had to wait for Titus to come. Titus came from the church at Corinth and Titus said, oh, they've taken to heart what you said, Paul. And he breathed a huge sigh of relief. Oh, how he was comforted by the coming of Titus, another brother. Let me close by saying, beloved, we shall not always mourn. One day, blessed day, halcyon day, God himself will wipe away all tears from our eyes. The key word in that parallel verse of Luke 6, 21 is now. Those who weep now for the right reasons will laugh and rejoice then. The tables will be turned in eternity. But could I say this? Until then, let's weep on. For ourselves, for our children, for our grandchildren, for those who think they're saved but they don't have the genuine article. Blessed Are they that mourn, Jesus said. I didn't say that, Jesus did. Shall we pray? Oh, Father, break our hearts for sin and sinners. And please let it come out our eyes. May we be utterly oblivious to what the world thinks. May we have an ear attuned to what you say. And you tell us, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. May we count it a privilege to enter into the sufferings, the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ, the man of sorrows. We pray it in his name. Amen.